uh, week three of module two. Ta-da. So he's talking on the leaven of the kingdom. All right. Are we ready for this? Okay. So uh, you know, we talk about the seven mountains of influence. We're talking about, uh, and, and again, where we've started in, in these first couple of modules is kind of giving you that big picture uh, understanding of Jesus' intentionality and purpose to, to bring his kingdom. Um, but understanding the kind of biggest, broader scope of that, I think, is helpful and important because we're, we're not just running into kind of doing stuff and not really understanding the fullness of why we're doing that. Um, having an understanding that Jesus was intentional and purposeful in how he went about doing that. And he, in that moment, in those few years, 2,000 years odd years ago, uh, Jesus intentionally created a culture, established an understanding with his disciples and and started a movement at that point. And there are principles that uh, exist there which are designed to carry on for a long period of time. Here we are, still, you know, 2,000 years later and it's having an expansive impact on the world. Where we can get caught is if we get caught too much up in the methodology of things. Uh, rather than focusing on the values that kind of undergird that and the principles. Uh, There are cultural principles uh, of the kingdom of God. There are ways of doing things which are kind of eternal uh, values and internal intentionality. So there is such wisdom uh, in Jesus. Uh, Sometimes, not probably often, uh, it can go against conventional wisdom uh, or, or worldly wisdom. Uh, even the New Testament writers spoke about that, you know, the way of the cross, you know, it just seems like it's just foolishness and, and weakness uh, to the world looking on, and yet it is the power of God demonstrated. So what we get to experience through the Holy Spirit is that revelation of uh, the wisdom of God expressed through his ways. Uh, and I know even for, for me and, and the team and those who have journeyed with us for many years, um, even the, our approach to uh, planting a church, our approach to, to doing kind of what we do uh, was possibly in some ways unconventional uh, and yet highly conviction-led. Um, the things that we chose that we felt like, well, these are just convictions from God that are outlined in the scripture and, and their kingdom values, but they don't necessarily always, it's certainly not the easiest path. The way of Jesus is not the easy path. Uh, we just talking before, it is the narrow road. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, there's a lot of principles in Christ that aren't applied because they just seem like, oh, but there's just an easier way or there's a, there's a quicker way. Uh, one of the things, like a, as a simple example, um, you know, around discipleship, certainly discipleship is not the easy path. It's much easier to make converts and then just, you know, fill up a room full of people. Um, but to actually invest yourself into people's lives, to cost yourself. Um, people are, uh, uh, some people are incredibly grateful, uh, but plenty of people are free to be incredibly ungrateful uh, and, and brutal in, uh, in their responses or their expectations not being met, and still you choose to love and to serve and to cost yourself. Uh, even when it came around, you know, to, to finances, you know, like we've never, we've not once taken up an offering for church kind of tithing stuff. Uh, we believe in tithing. We believe it's a biblical principle. But for me, I was like, well, I don't, if, if I'm having to teach 
people every, say every single week and then, you know, have the bucket come past and, okay, all guilty, you know, put my, put my money in. It's, it's not building mature disciples of Jesus. It's, it's you know, you, you might get more money in. Like, and, and I want you to know, truthfully, honestly, there's been plenty of times where I've considered it. Um, you know, well, more people would give, Lord, if they felt guilt, so guilty about it because, you know, the bucket's come and passed them. And, in, and it's only at those times where I know this is the worst time to preach on tithing because um, there's going to be a thread there. But, but we're just like, no, it feels like, you know, we want, we want people to be discipled. And, and it means not hassling them every single week and trusting God, you know, financially for that provision. And, and I want you to know we have been like uncannily blessed financially and covered and supported and uh, and God gives that promise and so you put it to the test and he proves himself faithful Matthew 6 33 seek first my kingdom and righteousness and I'll I'll take care of the rest I'll look after all of your provision and so we said well let's take that seriously and and how often do we come across scriptures that we kind of we know we've heard them a million times but we don't take it seriously enough so I'm actually going to I'm going to live as though that's true. Uh, I remember hearing even of uh, like a ministry school and and some of their students, (laughs) it's funny to think about, but they're like, Jesus walked on water. So I'd hear stories of people like going down to the ocean and then kids just running into the ocean, just crashing and then they'll try it again and they'll just run expecting, well, Jesus, you know, just praying, Lord, help us to walk on water and, you know, just trying things out. It's childlike faith. It's a bit of fun, but, uh, but, you know, like there's, there's, I'm a, it's a, it's a fun example, but but I'm just saying, oftentimes we actually don't apply uh, those principles. And anyway, this has nothing to do with my message. So there you go. You're welcome. All right. So as we talk about bringing the culture of the kingdom into every sphere of society, and again, you can take the the seven mountain kind of mandate as a model. It doesn't really matter. Just understanding God wants his kingdom culture to be infiltrating every aspect of culture. There is a way that God wants to do that. uh, And Jesus has spoken about that. So we understand the kingdom coming. We might have a perspective on, okay, what does that look like? And this is how we should do it. Um, But there's a a way kind of hidden in the scriptures. And and for me, it's, it's this picture of the leaven of heaven or the leaven of the kingdom. Uh, Matthew 13, verse 33, says he told them, Jesus told them another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. So obviously leaven is a substance like yeast, which is used in cooking to make dough rise. So the thing with leaven is that when it is added to the dough, it becomes part of the dough and influences that dough dramatically. It makes it rise, it makes it expand. And to the point where if you bought a loaf of bread, there is, there's yeast in it, there's leaven in it, but there is no way that you could then separate out what, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to pick out the leaven. I'm not a huge fan of leaven, you know, like good luck with that. It's just fully immersed in it. It's become a part of that whole thing. And... Side note, who has read passages in the New Testament where it talks about the kingdom of God is like and naturally inferred that to be a personal thing? Oh, the kingdom of God is like, you know, a man who finds a seed in the, in the field and, and sells everything to buy that. And often I've heard all of these parables in the perspective of like personal salvation because we've made the kingdom kind of about personal salvation and kind of really all about me um, and uh, and and 
Jesus does love you and he loves us. But, but for me, the more I've, I've been, God's been shaping, you know, this is outward looking kingdom perspective. And it's like, wow, this is what it's talking about. The kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven. So the kingdom of heaven is this small, insignificant substance that as it is infused into the world, it has this dramatic impact on the world and starts to expand exponentially and create something that is far better than a mouthful of yeast I've never or a mouthful of I've never tried before but I assume it's not as nice as a mouthful of freshly baked bread so this is how the lev, the, the kingdom expands through leaven it doesn't necessarily expand through this spectacular kind of conquest conquering dynamic but and that is what the disciples were expecting in fact, all the Jews, even still today, Jewish people have an expectation, maybe not all of them, they have an expectation that the Messiah, Messiah will come as a political um, kind of military person. So they're going to come, it's, it's all, it's natural, he's going to raise up as this, as this kind of uh, saviour figure um, and restore, you know, um, land to Israel and, and, and do all that. But it's really this political conquest. It's why the disciples were carrying around swords. Like when Jesus was arrested, like these aren't, they weren't military people, but they knew, cool, the time is coming. We better arm ourselves with, with weapons because not to protect ourselves because we're going to start, cool, like, right, Jesus, when you're ready, like, let's go and let's go kill some Romans or something. I don't know what they're going to do what they were thinking, but Jesus is like, hey, that's not, that's not what my kingdom is like. My kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is not of this world, but the way that his kingdom expands is also possibly not what we might consider it to be. It comes in secret and in service, and it's immersive. It doesn't seek dominion through control or oppressive force, but through meekness, humility, service, and love. It's the values of heaven infiltrating the world, which shapes then the culture of heaven. And then people start to experience that and they come underneath that, that kind of culture and that reality. They start to experience the reality of heaven on earth. So we know there's this leaven of heaven, this leaven of the kingdom that Jesus speaks about. And then, but there's also, which I think is really important for us to understand what is kingdom leaven and what is not kingdom leaven, because Jesus actually also warns us against a certain type of leaven. That's in Matthew 8. 14 to 21. He says, Now they had forgotten to bring bread. They had only one loaf with them in the boat. And Jesus cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear, and do you not remember? So this scripture is where Jesus then goes on to talk about, like, I, I, I literally multiplied food before your eyes, and now, next minute, <laughs> you're here, and you're like, oh, we're not going to have enough food. He's like, your perspective has shifted back into the natural. He's like, do you not understand? Are you not perceiving who I am and what I represent? It's not of this world. It doesn't work within the parameters of, of this worldly system and its limitations. It's a whole different uh, perspective and reality. But Jesus says, watch out. Beware of the leaven 
of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So we know the Pharisees were kind of the religious elite of the time, and Herod represented, you know, he was the political leader uh, in that place. So the church has historically been influenced and is always in danger of being influenced by either the leaven of the Pharisees or the leaven of Herod. So there's a warning that Jesus gives, not to be influenced by a religious spirit or a political spirit, but only by the Holy Spirit. The church historically has been influenced by that, and it then shapes our perspective of who we think we should be in culture. So the leaven metaphor is used throughout Scripture to mean different things. In this verse, it would seem to be speaking of two different influential worldviews and spiritual realities that can and do influence followers of Jesus and therefore the church. So the leaven of the Pharisees represents the religious worldview or what we might call a religious spirit. The religious spirit seeks to control and maintain the power position through rules and regulations. Have you ever experienced in a Christian context rules and regulations controlling culture and people it's all about just learn the rules learn the regulations stay within those guidelines everything's good everything's safe doesn't matter if you feel free doesn't matter if you actually agree with them as long as you do what you're told then everything's kind of good yeah so the leaven of Herod then represents a political worldview or a political spirit. The political spirit seeks to control and maintain the power position through conquest and oppression. So that's how governments at the time would, would, would advance, would grow. It was always through conquest. They would oppress the people uh, and then they would shift the culture to obviously represent their own particular culture. Um, but that's, again, that, that political spirit. It wants, it wants that power position. Both of those spirits want a power position. And this is where we, if we were to look at the Western church, the modern day Western church, I think a lot of people are still hanging on to this idea that we're meant to be in the ultimate power position politically uh, and, uh, and morally in the world. Would you agree? You're welcome to disagree. We can have a conversation here if you want. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it's hey, oh, well, how, how is the world doing that? They shouldn't be doing that. That's wrong. That's evil. That's unrighteous. And, and that might be a right assessment. But there's almost this thing of like, how dare you do those things and not consider our perspective and not come and consult us and, and always wanting to be back in that, in that power position, either morally or even in a position like politically in that, in that sphere of, of having control in a, on a political spectrum. You know, so what well, the government should listen to the church and, and, and that. And that's why whenever you look at those different kind of spheres, it's incredibly important that we come at it from a kingdom perspective, especially in the political sphere. Uh, there's been several things in the last few years that to me, it's like I can, I don't know what, it, I can just smell a political spirit from a mile away. Um, and I'm not, I'm not opposed to politics, I'm not opposed to governmental kind of uh, Christians having uh, influence in that sphere, absolutely. But the political spirit comes, and it's, it's designed to divide as well. It's divide and conquer is what it wants to do. It wants to control, and there's just that thing. I don't know, there's something in me, when I smell control, I'm like, I can smell in a mile away. And it makes it difficult to try and engage, because you know, in engaging, it's like that, that saying, you know, if you... If you wrestle with a pig, um, you both get 
get dirty, but the pig likes it, you know. Um, <laughs> and so it's not a good idea to do that. It's not the pig and the, with the pearls. It's the other one. Um, but so it's like, well, how do I engage? And I feel, like, I feel like I have a responsibility to engage with what's going on. But in order to, but if I come at it in the same spirit, then I come into agreement with the spirit that's behind it. And then I end up being influenced by that. And I just become the other side of a battle that I'm not supposed to be in. And it doesn't actually ultimately accomplish anything because it's not necessarily the spirit of God. I think there is, there absolutely is a way that the, that, believers that the church should be involved in all of those mountain spheres but not by coming into agreement with the thing that's driving behind it if that makes sense all right so then jesus obviously speaks about the leaven of the kingdom so the religious spirit and the political spirit have influenced the church for millennia in my opinion, it started with Constantine, Emperor Constantine, and has continued since then. So the early church was a powerful, expansive, and transformational force that made a radical impact on the world. And yet it was oppressed by the nations that it existed in. So in its original form, the early church, apostolic, prophetic foundation, okay, Radical expansion all across. I was looking at some maps the other day of the ancient world, and you see like the distance that the gospel spread, massive distances, all through people traveling and getting on boats, and like you see Paul's journeys. It's like it's a huge um, impact, and they have like they say like tens of millions of people became followers of Jesus in the first couple hundred years of the church, and yet they were oppressed, they had no uh, political influence, they had no societal kind of status, they were despised, they were, I mean, hunted down in, in, in a lot of ways and, uh, and tortured and oppressed, and yet the, the gospel spread radically with this group of people because they, they didn't have the privileges of, uh, of kind of a political position or a societal position. And when that happens, and this is what continues to happen today, anytime the church is oppressed, I, I see it takes on a more apostolic form. Okay? And people, in order to sign up to the cause, you've got, you're risking your life to do so. So it also weeds out those who are kind of not really serious about Jesus. Okay? So we, we see that happen in the early church, and there's this amazing, incredible multiplication of disciples being made, and it spreads right across the ancient world. Then you've got uh, Emperor Constantine. So this is, he reigned from 306 to 337 uh, AD. This is, uh, a, I don't know where I got this quote from, but some book somewhere. But it talks about Emperor Constantine the Great. He ruled Rome uh, at that time. Uh, Christianity became the dominant religion of the Roman Empire. Historians remain uncertain about Constantine's reasons for favoring Christianity. And theologians and historians have argued about which form of early Christianity he subscribed to. Constantine's conversion was a turning point for early Christianity, sometimes referred to as the triumph of the church, the peace of the church or the Constantinian shift. In 313, Constantine and Licinius issued the Edict of Milan legalizing Christian worship. The emperor became a great patron of the church and set a precedent for the position of the Christian emperor within the church and the notion of orthodoxy, Christendom, ecumenical councils and the state of the church of the Roman Empire declared by edict in 380. You might look at that and go, that's wonderful. Yes, finally. Like it's, if you imagine if, if one day the, 
you know, the prime minister comes out and says, all right, Australia is now a Christian nation. Everyone must uh, convert to Christianity and, and follow Jesus. And that's how it's going to be now. I'm, I, I imagine plenty of Christians would be like, yes, woohoo, victory, awesome, amazing. Now we're a Christian nation and we can all relax. Um, but it, it just, it doesn't work that way <laughs> because people have freedom and they have choice and, and God desires a heart that is focused towards him, not just kind of conformity. So it seemed natural to see this as a triumph for Jesus and the church, but I disagree. Constantine brought, Constantine, sorry, brought the religious and the political spirit together and called it Christianity. So the problem is the kingdom culture and missional dynamic of the church was then lost. In it, in it having success politically and socially, it, it lost the power of, of what was actually at work in the church. Christianity was thrust into a power position. Again, that's from the natural perspective. It lost power by gaining power. It gained political power. It gained kind of societal power, moral power, religious power. And yet it lost the very power of God that was expanding and growing the church. So Christianity was thrust into a power position, not by love and by service, not by the values of the kingdom, but by conquest and decree. It was given influence in society because of its political and religious position and not because of the power of the Holy Spirit or the example of Christ. And this has continued for generations to the point that we've lost the true meaning of what it is to live as kingdom people. The dominant paradigm in the church's thinking is that we should be seen to be in the power position in society. And I, I don't know if you feel that way. It just it tends to be still that thrust of like, yes, we just want the church to be like number one at the top and everyone listening to us and then the world would be okay. I, but I, just Jesus just didn't do that. Like he could have done that. All the angel armies, every resource in heaven available to him. He comes as a baby. Even in his triumphant entry, you know, in, into town, this is, you know, and they're, they're Hosanna, but it's not, there's no, you know, big fanfare. He's riding on a baby donkey. Like he's, he's, he's so low, so insignificant. And there wasn't even a big party. I was listening to a, a, a podcast the other day and the person used the word donklet. So the baby donkey. Uh, I thought it was cute. Um, you know what I mean? Like it's just so, so opposite to what was happening in the world. And yet it was absolutely his triumphant entry. It was absolutely his way. Again, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, now to a cross, giving up his life. Like it, it, it has no connection to what we would expect triumph victory to look like. And yet it is triumph and it is victory. It's upside down. It's the kingdom. So Jesus was very clear that the conquest of the kingdom would not come how people expected. Even his own disciples, as I said before, expected a militant overthrow of earthly governmental structures to usher in the kingdom. But that's not how God planned it. Luke 17, 20 to 21 says, Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God, if you want this any more explicit, is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, oh, look, here it is. Oh, there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. 
The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. You're not going to see it. You're possibly not going to notice it. How much of Jesus' teaching is all about unnoticeable people doing really unspectacular things and yet having incredible impact. There is, no one has an excuse to not be used by Jesus. He removes all excuses of your limitations and your inabilities and he says, because with my spirit, you can do all things. So the kingdom is Christ. Wherever Jesus reigns, the kingdom exists. But he has to be present. You know, it's like, I think of the kingdoms like a ninja. You don't see it before it's too late. <laughs> you know? Like if you see a ninja, you're already dead. But that's how the kingdom expands. Like before you know it, it is everywhere. And that's how the church is, is supposed to be influencing culture. That's how the mountains, these seven mountains of influence, that's how they're changed, is by every single person just in humility and love and service, expressing the values of heaven, expressing the truth of God, expressing the, the fruit of the Spirit into every different place. And you might have a huge sphere of influence. You might have a really small one. But your small sphere and someone else's medium-sized sphere and someone else's massive sphere all put together, the culture starts to, to shape things to look like heaven. You know, we would talk about when decisions come at a governmental level, at a political level, that don't reflect the values of heaven, that's when we know we've failed at our job of being the leaven of the kingdom in the earth. Because the culture has said, we want these values. No politician goes around making decisions. Maybe not no politician, that's unfair. Let's say maybe in the majority of politicians, do that which is popular. Because that's how you stay in your job, is you be the most, it's literally a popularity contest. And so you, what you want to do is be the most popular person to get in the highest position of power. Now, again, you might have another agenda there and you might be able to then, once you get in that position of power, you work your own agenda. But in order to get there, you've got to be the most popular person. So therefore, you've got to come into alignment with the values of the culture, the dominant culture that exists. So if we have a dominant culture of, of immorality and a dominant culture of unrighteousness and sin and brokenness and pain, all this sort of stuff, then that's the culture. But that's what is going to be pushed forward at a governmental level, at a political level. So again, we can then go, well, we need to get up into that political position and we'll try and influence them. Say, well, you'll never get there because the culture will never put you there. Even then people, so I, I know some people who are involved in politics and in the, in the back end of stuff, and, and I hear stories of the, some of the stuff that goes on, and it's, and it's, it's pretty bad. Um, but even Christians who have to compromise themselves in order to, to stay within a political party, to hold on to their seat, to do all that sort of stuff. So again, I, I, I'm glad I'm not in that world. I think it would be a very, very difficult place to navigate but see the issue is that even if we're saying oh yes we just want a, a Christian more Christian politicians or a Christian prime minister the problem is they're not going to remain in that position because the culture is pushing against them and what maybe what we're doing is we're kind of 
handing over our responsibility to a few in order that, oh, if they just, oh, I, just want, I just want the promise to be a Christian, then everything will be okay. And it's like, it won't be okay because the culture is not being influenced by the person at the top of the mountain. It's by the majority of culture all through the mountain and through every mountain. So if we're not taking that responsibility and going and impacting our neighborhoods and our, and our family and our friendship groups and our workplaces and everywhere that we go and we are and we have an opportunity to influence, then the culture of the world stays the same. Too often, again, the church extracts people out of culture. So although that culture is bad, come and just do a whole lot of Christian activity. But being you've got a subculture, okay? But that subculture has no influence on the culture. In many ways, it has a negative influence on the culture. Where, it, where the stuff that the culture interacts with is all of the bad stuff. They don't see all the good stuff that the church... And I'm not saying... Christian subcultures, they, that people's lives aren't changed and, and good things aren't happening, but the world is going in one direction and the church is kind of standing back and saying, well, just, just come over here. Don't worry about what's going on over there. Just come over here. And again, that feeds into our eschatology of the end times and do we think that things are going to be getting better or are they going to be getting worse? And if they're going to be getting worse, then really you should probably just withdraw more and more. Uh, and yet if the kingdom is expanding, as Jesus said it would, um, then maybe we should be more out there. And if we actually understood our power and our authority in Christ to influence and impact culture, then we'd be more immersed in those spaces. We would be living incarnationally like Christ did, immersing himself in sinful culture, not being in the world and not of the world. And again, not to come with our own perspectives of how we think things should be, but just to love and to serve and to proclaim the, the goodness of God and, and the reality of his kingdom and demonstrate that through spectacular, and not so spectacular means to me if every single Christian in our city just took on that perspective how radically different the culture of our city would be and yet we want it no no we want spectacular but just one one giant big rally you know an event if we just if we just had a big enough if we could just fill every stadium with Christians worshiping God then everything would change I don't think it would because I think you'd have another big event with a whole lot of Christians who would enjoy one another's company and they go back to their normal lives and no one would care. Oh, something's happening at Optus Stadium tonight. Oh, well, I wonder what that is about. Go about my life. But we think, see, we think if, we, if we're just big enough, if we're powerful enough, if, we're, if we can dominate culture enough, then they'll, they'll submit. Well, they won't. And whatever submission you get will be from control or manipulation, or whatever, and it's not the fruit of the king. And just my opinion. <clears throat> Matthew 13, verse 3 to 9, this is the sowing kingdom seeds. Jesus told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and he sowed some seeds. So as he sowed some seeds, they fell along the path, the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up since they had no depths of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on the good soil and produced grain. Some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I love this parable because it's, what it reflects is the way and the, uh, 
the expanse of what our sowing should be. If you're a, if you're a farmer and you listen to those words of Jesus, you'd be like, no, uh, no, no, no. You, you don't throw your seed on the rocks. Um, you just you, you till the soil, you get the fertile soil, you, you, know, you do it all that way, and then you just put them in that fertile place and you're good. But Jesus seems like really nonchalant about where he's putting his seed. He's like, just chuck it everywhere. But that is the point of it, is that your job is not to determine what happens to the seed. Your job is to scatter the seed. Your job is everywhere that you go to be sowing seeds of the reality of the kingdom into every place, into every interaction, into every culture, into every sphere of of authority or influence that you have yourself. And then you trust God that he's going to bring the fruitfulness from that. So it's not sit around, okay, well, I'll wait till there's some fertile soil. Well, you don't even, you, you don't know that the soil of someone's heart is ready for it. And again, you don't know, those seeds can lie dormant for years and all of a sudden they spring up. But I just love this almost like wasteful way of sowing seed that Jesus represents. And that's what he calls us to, to live. Just a, just a thought. So again, so the role of the leadership of the church is to equip people to live as missionaries and society transformers. As I've said many times, you know, people have been trained to lead Bible studies or prayer meetings, which might work in the life of the church or in a kind of Christendom environment, but they don't work in the world. And they don't also, they also don't release the right grace upon people to make disciples and release kingdom order into society. We've tried in the past to spiritualize the secular, and unfortunately, it has backfired on us in many ways. And it's important to understand that each of you has significantly more scope and sway in the culture than what the church does. The corporate church, what the, what, you know, what the world sees of the church, you have authority, you have favor, you have the opportunity to impact people. If you have no favor, we'll get to that. You can work on that. But, but the reality is like that's, that's where the, the message of the kingdom is going to land is in wherever you are and the people that you have favor amongst. But we, can, we could have the greatest church in the world and, and the world just is, isn't interested. Like you think about this, a multitude of beautiful, wonderful church communities with lots of wonderful people and lots of great stuff happening. But the world's not looking in. There's nothing that we have that they want because everything that is on display is kind of irrelevant to most people's lives. But you, incarnationally, missionally implanted into, into whatever place that you're in, as people look upon your lives, what you carry, the peace that you carry, the love that you carry, the way that you serve, all of those ways that you represent Christ, that's the doorway for for impact. That's the doorway for the gospel to be shared. And if the church isn't equipped to do that, then it's, it just kind of stays within the four walls and doesn't spread out. So I believe we need a radical paradigm shift to break free from the stranglehold of past religious institutional structures and leadership frameworks in order to see the effectiveness of the church realized. As I've said before, I don't believe that our attention should be about climbing and reaching the pinnacle of one of the seven mountains of societal influence. Our goal should be to change the mountain. 
And the reality is you can reach the summit of a mountain by finding the right pathway up the mountain, but the mountain stays the same. As the leaven of the kingdom, we can infiltrate every aspect of the mountain to bring about the transformation of that mountain and in turn the transformation of society. We need to move away from the political and earthly dominion-focused approach to societal cultural change and follow the example of Christ and serve the world. Through humble service and intercession, wisdom and strategy, God will raise up the right people to lead in every place of the mountain. Amen? Or I know. Okay, good. So what, what might it look like practically? I think some ways that we can be uh, sowing the leaven of the kingdom, obviously, as I was just saying before, favor, as you grow in favor with people, it opens the door for you to have a greater measure of influence, okay? So this is why it's actually really important if, if who you are, your character, and how you interact with people is incredibly important. If you're not, um, if you're not kind people are going to struggle to receive the message of the gospel. It's like oftentimes, it's, it's, uh, this is why I encourage people, like if, if someone has a prophetic gift and they can hear really accurately from the Lord and they're a jerk, it's like you are limiting the, re- the receptivity of the voice of God in someone's life. The vessel actually does make a difference. But I've heard too many people with a prophetic gift say, well, it's just, I, just, I, just, I just say the word, I just say the truth. It's up to about if they don't receive it, they reject it. And you get these prophets who were rejected constantly. And I do know that I, I do think there is an assignment of the enemy against prophetic people to not be understood and to be misunderstood and be ostracized because the enemy does not want the voice of God to be spread throughout culture. So I get that side of things. But unless you break through that and get some healing and some restoration, it's like, actually, sometimes I've met prophets and I'm like, no, you're rejected because you're just not nice. Like you're mean to people. And you come and you think you're, you're speaking truth, but it's not, it's, there's no love. So then you're the clanging cymbal and the, the gong. It's like all they hear is they just walk away with ringing in their ears, not being able to receive it. You know, I, I like to use, well, it's obviously in the scripture, but the sword of the spirit, you know, which is the word of God. I mean, yes, the sword of the spirit, but it pierces and divides and separates. Okay, but that's what a sword, that's what you want a sword to do is to pierce right to that point, that truth word that goes, psh, I mean, I don't know if you've ever had that experience where like a, a someone's prophesied and it's just been that boosh, gets you right in the sweet spot, you know, and you die. Um, but it's, it's, if you don't know how to wield that sort of truth, then you end up slicing and dicing people. And so you have like, come on, the truth, the spirit, and yes, bam, bam, and, you, and you're slicing people up and it's all just hitting their flesh and cutting them to pieces and they walk away bleeding and, and broken and yet the, the word hasn't landed anywhere. Jesus, in Luke 2.52, it says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus himself grew in favor with God and with people. There was something about him that he, he was a likable person. So it's okay to work on your character, to work on your persona. If you, if you have like, if you're one of these people, maybe you've got an, an RBF. Ask you if Google it. RBF. Resting bad face. Yeah, that one. I was trying to be nice about it. Okay. Itch, itch. You've got an itch on your face? Yes. 
you know what I mean? Like it's something you're just not like it, people are like scared of you just by looking at you or something like it's just those sorts of practical things that they actually do make a difference because it doesn't it opens the door to Christ. You might be super introverted, you can still be friendly to people. And you can still try and cost yourself to, to be like to smile when someone looks at you and, and do those sorts of things. I'm 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 introverted. Like I don't like interacting with people that I don't know. Like it's not it's not a joyous place. Like when there's new people on a Sunday, I don't like, oh yes, can't wait to meet them. I'm like, I'm gonna cost myself to make you feel loved and feel connected here. It's not it's not disingenuous. I just know the cost on me is is big. I'm like, especially if I've if I've preached, like I am spent, I am absolutely wasted. And it's like, but you but you matter to me. And I care about it, and it's not my natural thing, but I'll cost myself to do that. And I'll be friendly, and I'll smile, and I'll do all those sorts of things because I, I love and I care, but it's not necessarily my natural thing. And I'm sure, Amy will tell you, I think I've worked on that a bit, you know. Yeah, we used to have conversations back in the day, early church days, you know. And uh, she just encouraged, you should, like, talk to people and, you know, <laughs> those sorts of things. So, once again, I'm the problem. Not just from a, it is the reality. Hey, I listened to, I was listening to a podcast the other day and uh, it was speaking of a leadership principle and this person was saying that um, the best thing you do when someone gives you feedback is to assume that they're right and then work from that place. Because too often we get defensive and we assume that they're wrong. And, uh, and then, we, and then uh, maybe eventually we get to the point of truth. Actually just assume. And I've noticed like I tend to do that sometimes like just naturally and you're like, okay, I'll just, you must be right. And then you can go away and you can find out, oh, actually, it's probably not fully accurate. Yes. Um, I'll look it up because, yep. It is called, um, have a look at my history of what I listened to. Someone sent it to me. Here we go. No. What was that? Uh, it's called Managing Leadership Anxiety by Steve Cuss. Steve, C-U-S-S. And uh, I don't, but I don't know what episode it was, but anyway, it's good. It's about, uh, so he's, he's from Perth as well. So he's based in the US and interviewing, he interviewed, uh, I think it's Mike Cusper who did the, um, produced the Mars Hill documentary, podcast documentary. Anyone listen to that? The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Cool. Never mind. It's really good though. Um, sorry? Kelvin liked it. So, is anyone aware of Mark Driscoll, the Mars Hill Church, all that sort of stuff? So, hugely influential on me in my kind of mid 20s. Um, but uh, it, 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 rose spectacularly as a church and then fell dramatically. Uh, like within a week, the whole thing fell apart because of uh, what got exposed to really toxic leadership culture and all that sort of stuff. So helpful uh, learning as to, um, as to do that. But yeah. Anyway. Oh, thanks, Ebony, for the question. How did we get there? Yeah. 
the best thing to do when people give you feedback is to assume that they're right and then work from there. Yep. Now again, if you're surrounded by toxic people and they're giving you really unhelpful toxic feedback all the time and just diminishing you and crushing you, cool, well then that's find some new friends. Um, but uh, yeah, I think oftentimes we can be positioned to be defensive when we receive feedback and no, no, that's, that can't be, and, and we immediately have that response because we can't receive feedback. Um, whereas if we go, you're probably right, let me, but I'm still going to be responsible to go and do that. I, I, I've shared before, if people give me feedback about things and I don't immediately see it, I let them know I'm going to put that on my radar. So like a blip on a radar. And then I just start looking. Obviously, if it's some, if it's some random giving me feedback, I'm like, cool, whatever. Um, thanks. Like, you, you know, if you don't know me, because people have their own bugbears and they want to it's all power dynamics and relationships. I'm like, cool, cool beans. I don't, I'm not rude to them, but, um, but if it's someone that I, I trust their opinion and perspective, but I'm like, but I, I just don't see what you're saying, but I'm going to put it on my radar. So then I look in my relationships. Boop. Oh, yeah, I, I see a bit of that happening there. I see, okay, I'm doing something public. Oh, yeah, I, okay, I've noticed that. And then I'm, I'm become self-aware rather than just being like, oh, yes, well, if you say it, it must be true. That doesn't actually hit the right place anyway because it doesn't you don't get a conviction about it so then it doesn't necessarily produce good fruit coming out because then you're just being compliant to someone else's perspective you can be people pleasing it can reveal a whole lot of other unhealthy relational dynamics um, so anyway we're going to get into all of these topics coming up so in the in future modules so get ready for that so yes i've got here growing in favor with people is not people pleasing that's not favor. So favor is given by God, but it manifests in relationship. Okay, so as God increases that favor. Now, again, you can have favor with people who maybe don't know you. You just come into a, into a sphere, into a relationship, and God has positioned you in, a, in, in favor. And that's just the Lord preparing the way. But there is also, uh, uh, so there's literally in this scripture, favor with God, favor with man. It's the same word, grace, charis. Um, so... Favor can be translated as grace and uh, or favor. The word charis. Yep. Uh, and uh, and oh, I've got a whole teaching on grace, like what true biblical grace is. And I think it's a very distorted teaching in the modern evangelical church uh, of of what we often receive grace to be. Which is a yeah. Anyway, I'm not going to I'm not going to go there. Okay. Not today. Another time. I want to give you lots of group time. Um, so we need to know our sphere of influence. So what authority and influence has God given to us? I've been pondering even during the week, like if you, if you discover what God's calling is on your life, you have a responsibility to walk that out. So we can't be, oh, I feel like, oh, you know, I know there's a big plan for my life, but oh, I, just, I, just, I just don't know how I could do that or I just don't feel confident. So then you need to get confident. You need to figure it out. Like there's no excuse to say, well, I know you called me to do great things, God, but I just didn't, I just didn't feel like I'm, I'm, you know, I'm equipped for great things. So I'll just wait around. It, there's no, there's not, it's not a valid excuse. If he's called you to do great things, then become a, a, the great person that God needs you to be to fulfill the great things that he's called you to do. Like this is not about you going in a running race and getting an award at the end and feeling good about yourself. This is you being a laid down lover of Jesus. You've been through the waters of baptism, which means you've been through a crucifixion and death. Galatians 2.22, I've been crucified with Christ. My life is not my own. The life now I live, I just live, we're just completely devoted to him. 
Like that is your life from now. Whenever you said yes to Jesus, you were born again, the Holy Spirit came and to dwell in you, your life belongs to him now. So if he says, this is the destiny that I have for your life, whether you like it or not, that's, that's what he's called you to do. And he commands you and he commissions you and he equips you and he empowers you to do it. So you better get on and do it. Otherwise, you'll have to give an account for that. It, it's not, you're not, we're not talking about uh, heaven or hell kind of decision. But it's like you're going you're gonna to give an account for your life when you die. And ignorance is, there's no excuse for ignorance. I think it's important. We've, got, we've just made God into this cute little puppy dog. He's like, no, no, he's, he's the commander of the angel armies. Like he is, he's the giver of life and death. He'll give it and he'll take it. Like this is, he's, he's serious and we need to respect God and fear the Lord rightly and love him enough to, to honor and love what he loves. I think we do get caught up. I'm just going on some tangents here, people, but you just got to ride with me, all right? I do think that we live, we, we can get caught in immature love where the focus of our life is to fall in love with him more and more and more, okay? It's good. You need to love God. You need to grow in that love. The greatest command is to love him with everything that you are, but it's also to love your neighbor as yourself. For me, mature love is loving what the other one loves. Okay? So if I, it's, it's the starting place is I love you, Jesus. The, the place of maturation is I love what you love. And what does he love? Well, he loves people. That's why to go from loving God to loving your neighbor requires a perspective shift where we position ourselves. And what do you love, Lord? You love your enemies. You love the world. You, you know, you love, okay, so I'm going to go and love because I love you. Then I, I'm going to go out and love. But we, we can get caught in the one dimension of love, which is, is the starting point. It's a less mature expression of love and say, but to, to really love you is to love what you love and then to lay my life down to see what you love come about. That's covenant, I think. Like that's, that's it's in that marriage dynamic. Like it's, it's, for me, I love what my wife loves because it makes her feel loved when I love what she loves. But it's genuine. I want you to feel love. But the way that I that you can feel love is not just me telling you how much I love you, but by actually saying I value what you love and partnering in with that together. That makes sense. All right, freebies. We need to pray for strategies. We need to expect that the Holy Spirit will give us divine strategies to how we do it. If you look at the destiny and the calling on your life, and you go, I don't know how I would ever do that. Yes, correct. Get used to that. The prophetic words that I've had spoken over my life are way beyond anything that I could imagine, okay? But I'm like, but I know that you'll do it, God, if that's what you want to do. And my job is to partner with you in doing that. And whatever limitation there is, if there's something that I can be in order to partner with you in that purpose to grow and to be equipped and to mature, then I'll I'll be doing that, Lord. Because I want to see you get the reward of what you purchased on the cross. But we need to pray that God would give us strategies. If, if we come up against a mountain, we're like, how are we going to move this mountain? There's a strategy for moving that mountain. Amen? All right. We need to be prepared to engage in air war and ground war. I'm thinking if you're thinking of like in a business context or 
um, where in a ministry context, wherever you are, you need to understand that there's two battles that are going on. There is the, 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 the natural kind of warfare that we engage with and, and the, the relational dimensions and the strategies around all of that sort of stuff. And then there's all of the stuff that's happening in the heavenly, heavenly realm. The Apostle Paul says in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 to 6, I don't have it on there. Um, I've got some notes. There we are. Um, he says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So we need to understand that going in and just saying, well, I'm just going to be really, really nice to people in, in my work, and then the kingdom will come. It's like, cool, no, but there's, there is a heavenly force that is opposed it's even opposed to just you being nice. It's opposed to you being kind. It's opposed to you bringing in peace. It's opposed to you bringing in uh, reconnection and reconciliation. It's opposed to you rather than just hearing gossip actually being part of entering and saying, hey, and speaking a different perspective and being part of reconciling maybe two, two work colleagues together. Like it's, it's all of that. Neighbors having a, a battle over something rather than being like, yeah, yeah, I agree. Oh, they're a jerk. And then, oh, yeah, I agree. The, oh, they annoy me too. It's like rather than going, hey, what could we do to try and repair what's going on here? I'm just, you know, this is like simple stuff, those relational things, but understanding there's a, there's a whole heavenly battle that's going on that will oppose everything that you want to do. And the more work you do for God's kingdom to expand it, the more opposition you're going to face. It is just the reality. It's not going to get easier. It's not going to be joyful. It's going to be costly and sacrificial. Okay, it's going to cost you your energy and your time and your money. It's going to cost you everything. And it's a, a drop in the water compared to the cost that Christ paid for your life. But it is like, we just need to be prepared. Yeah, cool, this is, I'm going to go in and there's going to be a battle here. And I'm not going to avoid the battle. I'm going to engage in the battle because I know that the Spirit of God is with me and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And there's angels who are warring with me on my behalf, on behalf of God. There's, there's all of that stuff going on. But the battle doesn't happen unless we engage and we partner in with God in that place. So we need to understand that we are there to shape things spiritually and also to shape things culturally. And uh, yep, that'll do. I've got that. Oh, binding and loosing. That's also helpful. Um, I don't have the scripture for that, but, uh, but you know, like there is this reality that to understand the authority that you have to speak things into existence, to determine what will happen and what won't happen. And again, this is not just say what you're thinking. This is, Holy Spirit says, this is how it's gonna be. And then in your decree in partnership with what Holy Spirit is saying, things start to shift. And you start to command things to be one way and they become that way because you've been given authority to bind and loose. As, as people under the authority of Christ, we have those keys of the kingdom to, to establish the kingdom on the earth. And again, it's not just, and, and when we're talking about waging war and battles, it's not just, oh, if you think it's a good idea, like it's led by the Holy Spirit, but to understand there is a spiritual war against, like if you just take the neighborhood that you live in, the houses around you, there's a spiritual war to oppress those people. 
everywhere that you go, in your workplace, you think, well, what does the devil care about my workplace? Because there's people there. And when people, when the church wakes up to its authority and its power and its, its ability to influence culture, man, pet would petrify the devil. This right here, I have no doubt is he is petrified of what could be released from here. Because we've got 40 people here. Jesus had 12. Now, I'm no Jesus, but still, then you know, it's like he's here, he's present, Holy Spirit's here, you've got him in you. Jesus said, it's better that I go, that I send the Spirit. But we've got to understand, this is like world, tra- we're talking about world transformation here. We're talking about the very thing that Jesus inaugurated coming about. And it might, it, we might see a little snippet of it in our lifetime. But if we lay that right foundation, shift that perspective and paradigm of the body of Christ to understand, yeah, we're, not, we're not just hanging around waiting to go to heaven one day. We are commissioned and empowered to bring the reality of heaven to earth. And again, we're talking today about it. It's like, it doesn't have to be spectacular. Don't look for spectacular things. Just take what's before you, steward that well, ask the Holy Spirit questions. Holy Spirit, what do you have for me today? Who do you have for me to talk to today? Who can I bless today? Who can I pray for today? Like it's, it's, I think that the kingdom coming is a whole lot of really unspectacular things all happening at the same time over a period of time. And then before you know it, bang, it's there. And you can't, the, the loaf has risen, the bread is ready and it's good. And it's like, where did that come from? Well, it came from a multitude of people just being laid down lovers of Jesus expressing the the reality of heaven to the world around them. Amen? Awesome.